0: This podcast proudly brought to you by Fever Tree. And remember, if three quarters of your drink is the mixer, mix with the best Fever Tree. It's the Gin Tonica podcast, John Deeks and David Box, the founder of Gin Tonica. We're going around the countryside, meeting up and talking to some of the finest gin boutique distillers there are. David, we're heading to Tassie again. Yeah, we're going
1: south again, and uh, this time we're going to one of the distilleries that's one of the older ones of, of all the distilleries that we have in Australia. And who are we speaking to? We'll be speaking to William
0: McHenry. Well, let's get William on the line right now. William, how are you? David, good, thank you. Hiya, William. It's John Deeks here as well, and you're on the air with the Gentonica podcast. And uh, thank you very much for giving up some time. I know doubt a busy time down there at the McHenry Distillery. First up, sir, whereabouts in Tasmania are you?
2: We are right on the edge of this great southern continent of ours, at a place called Port Arthur. Oh well, we, we, know in Port, in we know Port we know Port Arthur, Arthur or, very well. Yep.
0: Give us the background history to the McHenry Distillery, please, William.
2: So we, we set the distillery up here uh, at the end of 2010. Um, I moved the family from Sydney, my wife, two girls, and, and a young son, principally to set up making whiskey. That was the sort of the driving force for our distillery. Um, and we set it up at Port Arthur because we have natural springs here. The water that comes out of the ground behind us on Mount Arthur is pure, soft, and pristine. It's probably the cleanest water you'll Probably fine in Australia because distilleries require a a, a lot of water in the making of distilled spirits. We decided to set up here because it gave us a a consistent supply of really pure, high-quality water. So I love to take people there so they can really see um, the water rising up out of the aquifer and and, um, they can take a glass up there and have a little drink and they'll just see how beautiful and soft and clean it is.
1: So although you, uh, your desire was to, to make lovely whiskey, you started with gin.
2: Well, yeah, we've actually always, from day one, we've always made whiskey. And we continue, strangely, to, this is a, this is a strange concept, we make more whiskey in any day of the week than we make gin but we sell more gin than we make whiskey. And that's as a consequence of the fact that whiskey is a matured spirit. So our our most of our whiskey is being laid down for 10 to 15 years, whereas the gin is an unaged spirit. It means we can essentially sell it the day after we, we make it. So we started, although we started making whiskey right from the get-go, we started making gin fairly early in on the scene because we wanted customers that visited the distillery to be able to try an alternative spirit if they weren't whiskey drinkers Um, because whiskey is one of those polarizing spirits. It tends to be a love-hate relationship with a lot of people. So for those that that didn't really enjoy drinking whiskey, we wanted to give them alternatives and our range has blossomed from that early day when we made our classic gin and now we have something like 10 different gins in our range.
0: Now you have a very interesting uh, methodology in your 500 litre pot Tell me about that still.
2: We've got three stills now, two copper stills, which we tend to use for the whiskey. We've got a 500-litre copper pot still with a, what's called a three-plate column, which we use for big runs of gin. And we've also got a 200-litre stainless steel, six-plate column still for making small runs of gin. Um, so we're sort of fairly versatile in our setup. The, the copper pot still is basically in a, in a, a, a bath so we heat it up but all sides of the still are heated gently. and That means we can control the temperature very, very precisely. And that's pretty important when you're making gin because you're putting, you know, what are delicate aromatics, uh, botanicals, seeds, sometimes flowers, um, peels inside the still, and you want to capture all the flavors from those particular aromatics. And if you have a still where you can't control the temperature very precisely, you can burn or lose some of those flavours. So our still is designed specifically for us to be able to extract the best of all the botanicals we use.
1: And that's a uh, a local still?
2: Yes, we we like to go local with everything we do, David. Peter Bailey is one of the leading makers of uh, uh, stills in Australia here. So he made our first one back in 2010. He followed up with another one um, in 2005, and we're actually getting in to quote on a, yet another one uh, next year, all things being favourable.
1: So as, as as a distillery that opened up in 2010, you'd mm-hmm. be in probably the first dozen gin distilleries in Australia.
2: Yeah, so we were there very early in on the scene, and, and now the whole gin scene has has sort of exploded. You know, there's just a, you know cornucopia of different styles and, and places where gin is made.
0: William, if someone was going to ask you the point of difference with McHenry Distillery, what would you tell them?
2: Look, I think place is very important. The French have a lovely word for it, terroir. And and the good thing about that word terroir is that it encompasses more than just you know, the, the latitude, longitude, it's about the soils, it's about the air. For us, it's about the, the springs. The environment here is extraordinarily clean and pure. Tasmania, as people don't know, has the cleanest air in the world. The ingredients we always use are fresh, and in some cases, we actually forage or collect them ourselves. So we ensure the, uh, the quality of everything we put in. And for us, everything's handmade. We do everything in relatively small batches. Uh, we taste, we quality control everything that we do. And of course, because it's got my name on it, nothing goes out unless I'm satisfied that the quality is there.
1: William, you've got a, uh, an iconic gin that was made for Parliament House.
2: Yeah, I, it, 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 it's funny in in the UK if you're making gin, say for instance, you know, for the Queen you would have a stand, regal assignment or something like that. We basically are the distillers to Parliament House in Canberra, and I can never quite trace how we we got involved, but they came to us. I think it was literally after uh, Gourmet Traveller did a review of our classic gin, and they they talked about it being essentially the best classic made gin in Australia and, and uh, someone in, in Parliament House must have been reading Gourmet Traveller and got onto us and asked them if we could make them a gin. So we collaborated over the space of a, probably six or eight months and we designed a really quintessentially Australian gin for them.
0: What does it taste of?
2: It's Taste of Australia. What we use is botanicals from every state and territory. Wow! Around this glorious country. So what we're trying to do is combine some of these great bush foods, these these lovely botanicals and plants that we have in Australia, combined together with juniper to make what we think is is essentially the the, the flavour of Australia in a gin. We also now use it really as our as our flagship gin for around the world, because, you know, if you're in, in London, uh, they've got a plethora of different style London dry gins. You know, what they want for an Australian gin is something that brings with it some of the sure. uniqueness of Australia. We've now got inquiries out of the US, Japan, Italy, France, um, literally for this particular gin... Because it is this quintessentially Australian gin.
1: Yeah, look, it's one of the ones we keep on our list all the time, as you'd know. Mm-hmm. That uh, You've got a, a different take on barrel aged as well. Could you explain that a bit? With
2: him. Yeah, so because we're a whiskey distillery, we like to be able to showcase what barrels do to spirits. Now, clearly all whiskey goes into a barrel because it can't be called whiskey unless it's been in a barrel for a number of years. But gin um, is, is a little bit different. We we drink it typically these days as a white spirit, unaged. But if you roll back time. Gin would have been put in a barrel, even if it was sort of for a small time when it was being stored at the distillery or being transported. And so it just largely depended on how long it was being stored for and how far it had been transported to how long it was in the barrel. So we do a 12-month-old barrel-aged gin with a twist in that we do it what the Spanish call a solera style. Now, barrels, each individual barrel is a little bit different. Um, They're a little bit like the members of our family. You know, we all, you know, sort of from the same parents, from the same love, eating the same food, but yet we all end up slightly different in character. And barrels are like that, too. Each barrel we get, even if it's from the same cooper, from the same forest, using the same wood, will be slightly different from the next one. So to remove any differences between the aged spirit, what we do is we move it from barrel to barrel. And effectively, we've got 24 barrels in the Solera and that we move half the spirit in each barrel to the next one each month. So over the span of that 12 months, the spirit moves through four barrels and it gets all that sort of lovely sort of flavours from each of those individual barrels. So they all have their own little sort of fingerprint on the outcome and it does mean that at the end of that 12 months it's a really consistent uh, uh, product that you can basically buy one year and know that if you you drink that bottle and come back next year it'll be fairly much the same.
1: And uh, I can bear witness to that, William, because that is one of the smoothest barrel-aged gins you can get in the country.
2: Yeah, smooth is a critical word here, David, because um, typically, you know, raw distilled spirits are quite sharp, they're quite volatile on the mouth. You, you really get the sort of the, the effects of the alcohol on the palate, and... Putting things in barrels basically blends them out, inclu- includes some of the tannins from the wood and, and takes all those sharp edges off. I sort of characterise it like, you know, my son at 18 is a little bit like a raw distilled spirit and an aged gin is like me at 60, you know, a little bit smoother or, you know, a bit rough around the face but still smooth <laughs> on the inside.
1: <laughs> One of the gins that I also love produced by your good self is the slow gin. Tell us about that. Yeah,
2: so... Slow gin was, started out actually as an attempt to sort of reconnect with my teenage children. When I grew up, we lived in the Adelaide Hills, and um, I used to love going out foraging with the parents for blackberries. Because the gin was sort of proving pretty popular, I was looking at different styles of, of gins, and, and the very popular style of gin is the slow gin. Now, it's a, it's a funny spelt word, it's S-L-O-G. It's uh, made from a a thing called a, a slowberry, which is an ancient sort of plum. And I'd heard they grow wild in Tasmania. But I brought here when the first settlers came 200 years ago and I thought I'd take my children out, we could have a picnic we can see a bit of Tasmania we can forage for slowberries and you know, I'll reconnect and also I'll get some strawberries at the outcome. Anyway, I couldn't get them out of bed, you know, teenagers being teenagers. So I ended up going on my own and I had a lovely day and I found those magical slowberries I picked about 20 kilos, I steeped them in the gym like you, you're supposed to do. After about 12 months I came back and we tested it and it was just magnificent. Uh, we took it to Salamanca Market. It sold out in a day. We couldn't believe how popular it was.
1: I can believe that, William.
2: From there, we've just every year we've increased production, and I think the last count, we we picked about three tonne of berries last year. Mm. They're all hand picked by ourselves at the distillery. We go out and we go into the countryside. We effectively close the distillery down while we're going out and picking these berries, um, and it's become one of the signature gins you know, for our distillery.
1: Another thing that I was looking for, William, do you still have that hut on the hill?
2: <laughs> it's effectively a bossy, we call it. It's like a shepherd's hut. It, it fits in the landscape so perfectly. It's a classic little hut that people can come and stay in if they want to.
1: The view from this hut, this is one of the most idyllic places you could ever yeah. imagine staying at. There's one other thing that I have to mention to everyone. Um, I have I owe a great debt to William. It was September the 30th. 2017 that I was sitting with William in his tasting rooms. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about doing an advent calendar and uh, William challenged, I said, look, it's too late, it's September 30th, they've got to all be done and and for sale in November, it's impossible and William said to me, he probably doesn't remember, it. he said to me, go on, you can do it, go for it. William encouraged me to do the first Advent calendar. Good on you, America?
2: William. Oh, look, you know, I love the idea that people are, are stretching out on their own. You know, I shook off the big corporate suit type, you know, sort of ten years ago, and never looked back. And so, when people come to me with ideas and dreams, I just say, yeah, look, give it a go. Really, just give it a go. Do you do tours? Yes, we we love doing tours. We've got uh, a really vibrant, functional distillery here, so people could come up and and see the working brewery. There's To make whiskey, we have to brew, so we make beer. We've got the three stills and they're generally working every day. We've got an underground vault where we put the uh, the barrel-aged gin now so you can actually walk into a little cavern, a cave in the mountain we we reside on and you can come and sample the the product out of the Solera and really understand the technical aspects about making a Solera-style gin.
0: And have a glass of that beautiful spring water.
2: Oh, yeah, you must do that.
0: We do encourage our podcast listeners to go to the au. Your website, everything is there you would possibly want to know, and you are a wonderful advocate for your not only for Tasmania but also for this wonderful craft.
1: And if you're Thank in you. Hobart, there's also the Salamanca Market. William
0: has a, uh, a store in in the harbour there on one of the wharves.
2: Yes, in Brook Street Pier.
0: Take care, William, and uh, thank you so much for giving up your time today.
2: Thank you. And if I can say to your listeners, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face and rain fall soft upon your field till we meet again. Thanks, William. Cheers.
1: What a wonderful man. He, he, uh, William and his wife,
0: oh. uh, the family are fantastic. I mean, They're so generous. That does sound a fabulous uh, gin that he talked about. The uh, the multi layered.
1: Oh, they have so many gins. They've got a butterfly gin, like um, not too dissimilar to the ink gin, yeah. uh, a blue gin that turns a different colour. And his range is fantastic.
0: Stay with us. Next, we head back to Tasmania to meet one of the true characters and masters in the distilling world. for a break and another interesting gin fact right out of the box
1: hey David John I want to refer to someone that's mentioned in my book a lot he's got so much character so much color that's Robert Cooper Uh, some of the small facts of this big man are that he was an original shareholder in the Bank of New South Wales, now Westpac. He became one of the richest men in the colony. He has one of the greatest stately homes that exists, still exists in Australia in Sydney. And he sired approximately 30 children. I'm not sure whether the 30 children has any relation to his relaxed attitude after a few gins, but read the book and find out. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the Gin Tonica podcast. It's me, John Deeks, and David Box, the founder of Gintonica. Hello, David. Hello, John. Busy times down there at Gintonica.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot happening. We're already preparing so many new
0: packs. It's amazing. There's more gins that come on the market. More packs. Well, you you are the the great promoter of Australian craft gin. I think today we're travelling to Tassie, are we not?
1: Yeah, we're going south to the Apple Isle and talking to a
0: really small boutique distiller there. It's called Non Such Distillers, and it's a family-owned and operated distillery established by Rex back in 2015. Yeah, Rex is also loves his whiskey, so he's
1: been. Um, Quite successful in, in the specialty gins he makes. He's also got a couple of products using Slows, the uh, uh, the English That's uh, not edged, S-L-O-W. No, that's S-L-O-E e. from the Blackthorn plant. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a traditional um, gin made, especially around Christmas time in England, but
0: we'll we'll drink it
1: any time here in Australia.
0: Well, let's uh, get to Rex Burden, one of the uh, founders of uh, None Such Distillery on the line in Tasmania.
1: G'day, Rex. How are you?
3: Good, very
1: well. Uh, We're here with John Deeks and myself. What's Annette
0: doing at the moment?
3: John, at the moment she's uh, unpacking about 40-odd boxes of goodies that we've finally moved down from uh, Brisbane. Most of it is things that I think we were glad to leave behind, really.
1: I I didn't know your connection with Brisbane, Rex. All I've
0: known is is you as a Hobartian. Uh, No,
3: I've been around a little bit, Goddard. I've been chased out of most states.
0: (laughs) So why did you settle in Tasmania, Rex, to start Nonesuch Distillery?
3: Well, again, it's hard to the uh, family history that uh, one of the uh, ancestors not on my father's side, which uh, has its fair sprinkling of convicts, but my mother's side of the family, and uh, especially her mother's line, uh, were the exact opposite. They were the sort of people who wouldn't have uh, ever thought that they would have you know, a conversation with a convict, let alone see you know one of their descendants married one, or married the descendant of one. <laughs> when they settled in Tasmania, the free settler side, they named the, uh, the farm they settled on, uh, no such. It was named after Henry VIII's Amazing Castle, evidently, which no longer exists. I believe uh, he bequeathed it to a mistress and she lost it in a poker game and eventually it was burned to the ground.
0: That's another anyway, story.
3: Yeah, they named it, yeah, <laughs> they named it after, after that, which was obviously something they'd seen or was close to where they came from. And I wasn't going to use the name. I, we used to drive past the place when we were kids and I often thought, what a strange name for a farm. But then uh, I was reading uh, the war diaries of uh, Sir Ian Hamilton. Uh, and his time at Gallipoli and I thought if I finish this book I can actually detest him even more than I do now so I waded through and sure enough at one point he described Lord Kitchener as a real nonsuch and I thought gee there's that farm name I better have a look and see what it means and it's no longer in in common use or at least not in the UK but it is in the US and it means a person or a thing without equal and I thought gee well that's what we want to make a spirit without equal so let's use the name it's got a family connection and it means what we want it to make. Just give me
0: an idea of uh, where the distillery is in Tasmania.
3: Okay, you land at Hobart Airport, head out onto the highways if you were going to Port Arthur, and the first town you come to is one of Tasmania's oldest towns called Sorel. and you head on through there and down toward Port Arthur, and we're about two and a half minutes from the township of Sorrel. So next little, little village, I suppose, is called Fawcett, and technically that's where we are.
1: So, you started by making a Tasmanian dry gin?
3: We did. Uh, in fact, uh, I had no intention of doing anything other than gin. I love my gins, and I thought at my advanced years I could spend the rest of my time making a range of gins. And yeah, I was, I was quite content to be doing that. And then uh, along came my, uh, my eldest son ask him would he come and give me a hand in the distillery for a couple of weeks while he was on holiday. And that was two and a half years ago. He's still there.
1: <laughs> you, you couldn't kick him out?
3: And, uh, no, mate, Now I think he uh, I think he thinks he's running the show at the moment. And given that he's a lot younger and fitter and works harder than me, I'm, I'm having to let you think that.
1: So after the Tasmanian dry gin, you had a go at using slows.
3: Yeah. In fact, it was probably even a lineball event um, when I decided to to start this distillery and i'm not sure that i actually made a decision i was having a, a nice little chat to bill lark who's considered to be the godfather of australian distilling having got the first license to make craft uh, craft spirit in australia and bill asked me i'd taken a redundancy and uh, bill said yeah everybody are you do and i had really no idea so he suggested to me that i was going to make gin on the basis that if no one else wanted to buy it, I'd certainly enjoy it myself. Bill was Bill was so passionate about the whole industry. Before I knew kind of what was happening, I was ordering a still. And we were working up gin recipes. And uh, one of the very first things he said to me was, you love your slow gin. And uh, I said, yeah, but I've, I've gone off it a bit. You know, It evolved over time to become this very sweet, syrupy uh, product. And to be quite honest, it's not the way it should be. And I don't enjoy it as much. And he said, well, there's the answer. You're going to make a slow gin that the the world wants because it's the the old-style recipe. And uh, so it was always going to be one of our key products. And we fiddled around for a long time talking to people in the UK who made slow gin for county fairs and that sort of thing. I didn't want to talk to big distilleries because, as I said, I I think they've made a mess of it. So, yeah, we, uh, we always had the slow gin on the horizon. But underlying that, was the, the fact that you can't make a good slow gin unless you make an exceptionally good dry gin. There's there's a school of thought amongst people that don't know any better that um, you can use any old gin, go down to Aldi, grab a two-litre bottle of their cheapest dry gin and pop some slows in it and, you know, bingo, you've got slow gin. But it's like anything—the the quality relies on the passion. It, it relies on getting good fruit. It relies on having a good gin.
0: Just for those uninitiated, like sure. myself, what is slow?
3: Slow is one of the oldest stone fruits on the planet. Been around since the time of the uh, the Egyptians. Archaeologists have uh, proven that they used to eat it. But usually, the the richer echelon—they would have probably eaten these little tiny rather tart fruits because they would have known it was good for them. They wouldn't have known why, but being one of the first stone fruits, it would have been one of the very few things for the antioxidants.
0: Of yeah, it. of course. Yeah.
3: It was carted all across Europe thankfully by Roman legionaries because the Roman uh, army very quickly discovered that the very long hard thorn or uh, spikes but they're exceptionally long, they're like a long pointed sharp needle. The army was always exposed to being attacked on its flanks, and the Roman's quickly decided if they put these trees all along the Roman road, they couldn't be attacked. People would try to get through them. And, of course, one of the places they took them to was to to quell those dreadful bricks. Britain's got hedgerow after hedgerow after hedgerow along old country roads and mm. Roman roads. Tell me about the malt. The slow malt. Yes, yeah, tell me just, about the Slow
1: Malt. John won't be surprised, Rex, that I say right. it's one of my favourites. Because apparently I have a lot of favourites, but the Slow Malt is one that sits on my bar all the time.
3: It's a bit like me, mate. My favourite is always the one I've got in my hand. The Slow Malt, again, having having a nice long lunch, we have actually been trying some of the very first vats of, of Slow Gin uh, to see... How they were coming along and uh, how long we might leave them and, and all those wonderful things. And uh, again with Bill Lark, and we were talking about all kinds of gins, and he looked at me and said, There's something you're not telling me. And I said, Gee, I think he's got me. I'm a, I'm a dreadful liar at the, at the best of times. And he said, What are you developing? And I said, Well, I've taken some of the slows and we've made some new make whiskey spirit. Which, if we put it in a wooden barrel and let it mature, we could sell a single malt whiskey. But I don't want to do that, Bill. I want to see how these slows work in what would be eventually a whiskey spirit. And he said, Oh, the, uh, the Scots have tried that. And I said, Yeah, I thought someone would have, but I can't find it anywhere. He said, No, that's because it doesn't work. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Uh, I said, So tell me how they've done it. And uh, after a lot of discussion, it became apparent that when people had tried to use slows with whiskey, they were actually using matured whiskey. And if you can imagine taking a brown spirit and adding a, adding a fruit, which is going to turn a clear spirit red, the colour that you got in the finished product, if you use mature whiskey, was pretty off putting. And of course, you then had all kinds of different aromas fighting for your attention on the nose. And I said to Bill, no, I don't think that's the way to do it. I think what we've got to do is, is create a really unique, um, new make spirit where we go deep into the tiles, because we're not going to pull flavour from the wood. If we go deep into the tiles when we're distilling the spirit, we're going to pull all these beautiful flavours, all those oils, uh, all those things that whiskey distillers dispose of because they're going to capture them from the wood. I so said, we're going to get them built. And he said, how far along with this? Eh? And I said, look, I won't be able to do it till next year. I've got very few slaves to work, work with as an experiment. Uh, need to get slow gin onto the market in quantity as quickly as we can. So my little skill is going to be working hard making gin. And uh, he said, well, I can't wait till next year. (laughs) I suppose there's no choice. And uh, he said, yes, there is because I own a big still. And I go, oh, of course you do. <laughs> and he said, so meet me tomorrow. We're going to go out to Lark Distillery. You're going to use the still and you're going to make the spirit because I really want to try this. So off we went. We did exactly what we wanted to do. We followed our own gut feeling about the product and mate, it just walks out the door. We can't make enough of the stuff.
1: Now, Rex, you've moved on to whiskey. I saw uh, that you had, was it the first batch or the second recently?
3: There's a few whiskey releases happened now. That is really down to Chris. Who's Chris? Uh, he's my son, the oldest son. Oh, okay. So from the moment he joined me, he said, Dad, we should be making whiskey. And I thought, well, that's okay for you, but I'm too old to be hurling whiskey barrels around. It. But he assisted and he eventually wore me down. And I said, look, if you want to, uh, to make some whiskey, uh, that's fine. Just as long as you don't interrupt my production. Uh, go for it. So uh, his passion is for that brown spirit thing. But one of the things he did convince me to do was get looking to create a unique spirit. He said, you know, Australia is one of the biggest drinkers of bourbon outside the US. American bourbon tends to be too sweet for an Australian palate. So I want to make something where I adapt that recipe. I want to do something other than a single malt. And it's really taken it off that work.
1: I'll never forget when I first visited your distillery, walked in there, and your hat is iconic.
3: <laughs> yeah, it has. Across the industry, it's, uh, it's become, oh yeah, it in my hat. Uh, it's amazing how little things like that work
1: you're a very welcoming man Rex and it's great to visit you can get your uh, whiskey gin low uh, malt and uh, slow gin on
3: the website yeah yeah absolutely nonesuchdistillery.com.au
0: that's the one Uh, look we might even put
3: something uh, nice together for the listeners to this little interview what's a good code convict yeah look if we have convict that'll do if anyone orders online and they use that code they'll give
0: them 15% off if you go on to nonsuchdistillery.com.au and you are ordering yep. make sure you say the yep. word convict and you will get an extra discount on whatever your orders are that is sensational rex
3: no problem guys happy to chat anytime take and
0: care my friend
3: yes mate no problem at all cheers bye now thanks rex
0: bye what a lovely lovely guy you've obviously met him yeah i've been down there a couple of
1: times and uh he has yeah. a very strong following so once you've tried it you mm-hmm. It's
0: really wonderful. Tasmania have got some extraordinary boutique distillers, both in whiskey and in gin.
1: For many years, they led the number of distilleries in Australia per state. Punching so they, above their weight. They were. And Victoria only recently took over that mantle. But the difference there is very few of them have got enormous or, or massively yeah, big. Yeah. So what you've got there is real craft. Yeah. It's, they're quite individual. Do you have them
0: in your gin tonica packs?
1: Uh, we do. So uh, we like to um, share the love around and uh, don't have the slow gin yet because the production's quite small and boutique,
0: but mm-hmm. we do have the dry gin. If you want to know more about the Gentonica packs, go to gintonica.com.au and you'll find out more there. David, thank you so much. We're uh, traveling around the countryside and uh, we're not quite the Leyland brothers, but uh, it certainly is great fun. So we'll look forward to a, another adventure with the Gentonica podcast microphone. Brilliant. And from me, John Deeks, cheers. And from David Box. Chin chin. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Fever Tree. And remember if three quarters of your drink is the mixer, mix with the best. Fever Tree.